Welcome to Thrive at Work, a podcast which offers insights and latest employment trends to help employers attract, retain and develop great people with me, Polly Rathbone-Ward. With special guests, we're going to be discussing the many and varied aspects of HR, from practical topics to overarching cultural themes. We'll be looking beyond traditional styles of management to bring new and people-centred ideas to forward-thinking organisations that want to shape a new future where people can thrive at work. Hello, today I'm delighted to introduce Anna Harrington as my guest today and we're going to talk about um, something that's quite topical that's come out over the last of 18 months as a result of the pandemic and the symptoms that people have experienced from from COVID, those who've actually fallen ill with COVID. So um, the topic's going to be around long COVID. Um, So Anna, welcome. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and your business, I think, um, if that's all right. Um, If you could tell me a little bit about your background and how you've come to do what you do. um, Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much, Polly, for for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm delighted um, to be here. Um, so I'm one of these weird people called a specialist community public health nurse. My specialist area is occupational health. Um, I moved into occupational health from clinical intensive care, uh, transplant background after recognizing really the impact of work on clinicians and also how their health um, was affecting their ability to work. Um, and that, in essence, is what occupational health is about. Um, I have been in occupational health. So I've been advising businesses for 20 plus years now, and I really just love what I do. I, I'm very passionate. I believe in what I do. I believe that um, my advice and guidance is, is, is helpful. And certainly that's the feedback that I'm given. <laughs> um, now, I, my view of occupational health, the perspective that I take is really very, very, very broad. So, of course, it covers ill health, but I also encompass things like organisation, well-being and individual lifestyle. So, for instance, organisational well-being, looking at things like the psychological safety perspectives. Um, and I am actually a member of the Society of Occupational Medicine, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Um task force group on that and in terms of lifestyle looking at things I've taken a specialist interest actually in looking at things like sleep because it's been one of the most common things that people tell me about is is poor sleep and having poor sleep is enormously impactful on people's ability to be safe at work let alone we're moving into looking at performance as well um so I've done an American College of Lifestyle Medicine course on sleep and health and I'm also a member of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine so you know I'm very expansive um in terms of occupational health and in fact that's what gives me also a lot of pleasure and enjoyment um from this profession (laughs) brilliant brilliant and so what what do you actually offer to clients in terms of your services? Yeah, so I set up my business called Wib Limited in November of 2019. I'm, I'm what I call a specialist occupational health provider. So um, the main aspect of my offering is about management referrals at times of employee performance attendance um, or behavioral issues where there may be a health component 
to refer the individual to me and I'll be able to give both the individual employee advice and guidance and also the employer on how best to resolve the situation or what the prognosis uh, may be, you know, how long are these symptoms and effects on performance behavior attendance likely to continue? Um, it's to assist the individual employer in being able to make robust, defendable and fair decisions, um, which, of course, you know, every employer is, is, is needing to do. And so um, moving on to sort of the topic in hand, I guess, what are you seeing now that we, you know, um, I guess lockdown restrictions at the time of recording are lifted? Um, and so we're sort of 18 months after the start of the pandemic now. Um, so I guess what are you sort of seeing in terms of um, the impact of, of all of that in terms of sort of prolonged symptoms of COVID? Yeah, absolutely. So long COVID um, is the term that is commonly used for those prolonged symptoms. So anything more than 12 weeks um, symptoms continuing on, on for, or it's otherwise can sometimes be known clinically as post-COVID syndrome. Um, and it's, again, something that I've taken a specialist interest in, and I'm part of the Society of Occupational Medicine Multidisciplinary group on looking at long COVID. Um, the, we're seeing that the kind of sectors that are like more likely to have employees with long COVID are within the education, health and social care sectors probably come as no surprise mm. because those sectors are the ones that um, were exposed to COVID a lot more and were less likely to be furloughed, were not able to work from home. Um, and sadly, long COVID can exhibit a very wide range of symptoms, um, both in sort of severity of symptoms. And so some people might just have symptoms that are very mildly experienced, whether, uh, whereas other people are in hospital uh, with severe long COVID symptoms but also extremely wide ranging, which I think is possibly one of the reasons why even now there remains some doubt about the existence of long COVID. And I'm sorry to say, but this doubt is even coming from the treating clinicians. So your employees going, for instance, to their GP and they're left feeling that their GP is not believing them and actually it's not even just feeling I've heard actually being told by the GP that long COVID doesn't exist which actually quite frankly to me is bewildering um, because there is substantial and robust evidence globally for instance on the World Health Organization about the existence of long COVID. In terms of my clinics and what I'm seeing I am seeing yep that doubt <laughs> coming through Mm. Um, what I'm also seeing I'm seeing two situations really either employees are not able to get back into the workplace so their sickness absence is very long term or I'm seeing that yeah they've come back into work and they've done a phase return to work and they're back working at full time and everything's looking hunky-dory and then crash they suddenly can continue on no more 
And that, again, is very typical of long COVID. It's called the boom bust scenario, where somebody gives everything into an activity such as work and finds that then they're suddenly, utterly, completely depleted and they can continue no more. Mm, that's interesting. Would a phased return to work not have been considered as part of that return to work to gradually ease them in so that they perhaps don't go full throttle straight away? Yeah, I'm really pleased you brought that up, Polly, because actually the phased return to work isn't appropriate in this circumstance. If you're thinking of phased return to work and being of something like, you know, four to six weeks period of gradually increasing those work demands and work time. And by that four to six week period, the person would be working back up to their full contractual um, hours. The reason that it's not that appropriate is about that expectation that they're going to be up and back working and the job's done, you know, four to six six weeks. Right. So typically have a a review period, though, with a phase return to work. So we do not usually see that that happens. Do not see that that happens. Yeah. Reviews, I understand, are really difficult for employers to do for many reasons, not just from a time perspective, but also in line manager skill, confidence, capability in actually doing reviews that are not performance related. It's a much more well-being, empathetic, understanding reviews. And yeah, with long COVID, frequent reviews, you know, so if the employer is is coming back into the workplace and working up their hours and demands, just as a line manager, bear in mind Mm. that at some point the employee may go, I'm at my maximum. I cannot increase these hours or demands anymore. And what I suggest at that point, and in fact, before that, have an occupational health assessment. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to say that, aren't I? <laughs> but, you know, it's about getting that professional perspective and opinion, of course, in order to make those robust and defendable decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's okay. So going back where I was, so pausing that return to work and maybe looking at, and this is where HR, that professional HR advice comes in of having a temporary contractual change of reduction of hours. Right. That's interesting because you could argue actually anybody coming back from long-term sick of any kind, not just long COVID. I, I, I get your point. It's a really very good point about, you know, you tend to put in a face to return work tends to be around four to six weeks. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I think the perception then from the employer's side is that everything is, is, you know, you've done your bit and, and everything should be all good. But I think, yeah, in any kind of returning to the workplace, um, you know, reviews or uh, reviews should be happening or, um or the face return to work could be could be altered or changed or, or made more or made more lengthy. But your your point about temporarily reducing hours is um yeah that's really interesting as well. Thank you. Great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Do you see that people are struggling with with many different symptoms and they don't realise that they've perhaps got long COVID? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the typical or most not typical, the most common long and disruptive long COVID symptoms are 
breathlessness, fatigue. And this isn't this is fatigue that is very different from tiredness. It's very different from what you've experienced before. It's 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 debilitating fatigue where you know it's a real struggle to sort of push through with it joint pain and also brain fog so brain fog is reduced ability to concentrate your memory recall is not as sharp as it once was your ability to process information so maybe whilst you're following a a conversation is more difficult Um, your ability to decision make is all impaired compared to your normal before you had um, acute COVID. And I'm glad you've kind of raised this question as well, because it steps into, well, you know, how do you diagnose long COVID? (laughs) There is no blood test. There is no scanning that conclusively says long COVID. This is about the clinicians taking a history of when the person had acute COVID and looking at current symptoms, determining whether current symptoms could be caused by some other diagnosis. If not, and the person is describing about having acute COVID, then the default will be to say, all right, this is likely to be long COVID. Okay, thank you, great. So um, from an employer's perspective, Um, Are there any particular signs that they should be aware of or should be looking out for um, with people at work who might be might be suffering? Yeah, spot on, Polly. Another brilliant question. I'm so glad you've asked it because there are there are what we as clinicians call red flag symptoms. Those red flag symptoms are symptoms that need to be clinically investigated further because they connect with more very serious potential medical diagnoses. So those red flag symptoms are the individual describing that they've got an increase of heart rate. They might say something like a racing heart. They might describe it as palpitations. If they're experiencing chest pain, are they experiencing a new onset of confusion? Are they finding that they're not getting any better at all? Is the breathlessness also not getting any better? If they have any of those red flag symptoms, then as an employer, do not ask them to do anything that is physically exerting until they have been medically investigated. And again, this is probably where you're going to need to turn to an occupational health professional who will explore whether they actually have been fully medically investigated because I'm having cases where, yeah, the individual has those symptoms. They go to or they try and get a GP appointment and they're just getting a telephone based appointment. The national guidelines on this is that the individual needs to have a face to face GP appointment. So very least things like their chest can be listened to. They can have chest x-rays, but actually it's likely that they're going to need chest scans because they show up different things to um, x-rays. So yeah, any of those red flags, don't ask your employees to do anything physically exerting. It is subjective. What is physically exerting? We all have different abilities, different strengths, different fitness levels. So what is physically exerting to me is going to be different from 
physically exerting to another person so asking the individual so important yeah yeah really important yeah the great thing about other I think from my career um, in HR and the relationship I've had with occupational health people is that and the use for the really useful thing is to get that view from someone else who understands the role but also understands the medical condition of mm. that person and the prognosis and what what's happening with them mm. give a really useful and insightful view as to what they can and can't do sort of mm. now perhaps in three months time and then perhaps in six months time mm. that can really inform the employer to then plan uh, yeah. A, a, a sort of practical realistic <laughs> and um you know hopefully going to be successful return to work or to keep that person in work or you know or what or sadly it's sadly sometimes it's actually they're not they won't mm. be fit they can't be fit because mm. it's happened um and um, they actually cannot continue with their role so that's sadly I've, I've witnessed as well yeah but I just think that role and that link between the employer and the occupational health practitioner is just really key and so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Please, um, what's your view about adjustments, Anna? Please tell me more about that. Yeah, so in terms of my referrals, you know, if the individual, if the employer has asked me to, to offer some adjustments, then it's something that I take great passion and care with. Um, I'm very clear with the employee in stating that the employer does not have to put in place any adjustments at all, and nor does the employee have to take up any of my adjustments either. And actually, at this early stage, this is just about some ideas and starting off some, some points of discussion, really. So I tend to look at adjustments in within sort of three themes. So work location, work demands and work time. So work location, are they able to work from home on occasions? You know, that would be something that I would be considering. It's not always suitable. Sometimes the employee will say to me, actually, I don't have a suitable place at work. I mean, sorry, at home or my home environment. I really just don't like working at home. Uh, and that's fine. Of course it is. But also in terms of work location, if they're needing to be at work, then can you actually allow them to be in a location that is quieter? Because environmental noise and a busy place is more energy consuming and draining so even if it's just for periods of the day having the person or offering to the person a quieter place to work may very well be um, helpful for them in addition to that work location considering the commute to work how energy demanding is that commute to work? If somebody is, for instance, sat on a reasonably quiet motorway, that's going to be less energy demanding than somebody who is getting or walking to a train station, getting on the train, getting off the train, getting on a bus, then walking from the bus to the office. You know, as a typical example of differences of, of commutes to work and how significant they can be. And then looking at those work demands. So work demands is not just about the volume of work that somebody has to do, but it's about the complexity of that work. It's about the timescales 
of when that work needs to be done. So the pace of work, it's looking at also about whether the individual can have some control over those time scales, you know, are they able to have an influence on how, um, you know, quickly they have to complete that work. And always appropriate levels of, of control, giving that to the individual is going to be less stressful for them than if they have you know very limited control looking at working time so does the individual do shifts you know mornings late sort of afternoon evening time night shifts okay night shifts and late um late evening work or very early morning work is going to be challenging to the body what's called the circadian rhythms so it's going to be more energy demanding more likely to provoke symptoms and be symptoms to be difficult to cope with so see if you can offer a, a regular start and finish time that avoids that late or early morning times in addition to time looking at the breaks that you offer for instance do you offer a, a one hour long break if you do it might be worth splitting that hour into smaller chunks because it's likely that the person will need to have periods out of work to do what's called effective rest where they disconnect from anything hopefully they will have learned how to do that by the time they return to work and so you know I'm not necessarily saying giving them additional break time I'm saying the standard break time that you offer, just see if you can divide that up um, throughout the day. So hopefully there, there's some examples about adjustments and hopefully what you might have picked up from that is that none of those adjustments are going to necessarily cost, um, you know, they're not going to sort of be an, an outlay of, of money. Mm. Um, sure, it's going to be changes, um, in your systems and processes which I absolutely recognize might bring other issues with it and of course when we move on to look at the Equality Act and determining whether the adjustment is reasonable or not those considerations are relevant um, you know to, to be to be um, applied um, in this consideration yeah what point in the conversation with the between the individual and the employer would those sorts of considerations usually be brought up? Yeah, the considerations of adjustments, I think, should be brought up very early on because it's one of the most stressful things that an employee um, often has in their mind is that they think that they've got to return to work doing their full job straight away. And that can be a barrier to them even attempting a return to work so really early on almost you know whilst they're off sick from work if as an employer you feel able to sort of say to them look when you're ready to start considering return back into work please let's have a conversation about you know work changes that that you think are going to be helpful um, and start at that stage discussing about the appropriateness of an occupational health referral. Mm, yeah, I mean, even a phased return to work is actually a an adjustment, isn't it? It certainly so is. If we just go back a step, the term reasonable adjustment. Yeah. Um, 
if you could do you have any views on sort of what how you would actually define that <laughs> because that is very difficult it can be very difficult for an employer to I think um, I think there can be a bit of a perception around oh my gosh we're going to have to start um, widening doorways and and make all sorts of massive change um, which would be costly and um, I think there's a bit of a perception there but do you have a definition of actually what is a reasonable adjustment? Yeah, well, the de- it's, of course, a legal definition within the Equality Act 2010. And then, of course, it would be informed by the case law on that as well. But um, what needs to be considered or, or what is considered, actually, by tribunals? I'm, of course, not a law expert at all. I'm a health professional. <laughs> Um, is the size of your business, your turnover of business. So, you know, a larger business is going to be considered to have more capacity to be able to make more substantial adjustments. Um, for instance, you know, that, 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 that outlay of, of, of funds to, to, for instance, make physical changes um, than, a, than a smaller um, employer. It's also very essential to consider, are there any impacts on to safety from making adjustments for one individual? How does that impact on the safety of others? Mm. It's also necessary to consider as to whether the adjustments for that individual then place over, you know, too much demands onto your other employees. You know, it's not reasonable to then expect your other employees to be <laughs> working excessively to, to you know, pick up um, the, the sort of um, deficits that the other employee isn't able to do. But I think it's really important to bring it in at this stage about access to work, you know, access to work, a government agency that are there to help fund Um, any adjustments in the workplace for an employee who could be considered to be disabled so you know if you are worried about that financial aspect then go on to the um, access to work it's dead easy to google it and find it um, and have a look at um, you know making that application yeah that is a really good point that that is there and um yeah for employers to to use brilliant yeah. thank you so um going back to sort of long covid in particular then so um what sort of practical steps are you advising clients to take or that you see organizations taking in, in terms of long covid and perhaps supporting employees who are suffering or indeed those employees who are supporting people at home that might be suffering yeah um, yeah if you could, if you could talk of course if yeah if you've got an employee who's off sick from work i mean this just this doesn't just apply to long covid it, it it's, it's any reason for being off sick from work it's incredibly lonely and isolating being off sick from work so as an employer do try to keep in regular contact with them now I know this can bring up other issues as well and you do have to be very careful in the way that you approach um, the individual employee ideally you've already got this set out for instance in your attendance policy and so the employee the employee knows that if they go off long-term sick, that the employer 
is going to be getting into contact with them but it's from an empathetic supportive and understanding perspective try really hard not to put that pressure on the employee about well when are you coming back to work we need you at work when do you you think you're coming back (laughs) although you do of course as an employer need to have some idea of time scales because of course you need to plan the work so I absolutely understand it's a very difficult one um, to do but it's essential to try and do that um when the employee is indicating that they are feeling ready to come back into work of course I'm going to advise have an occupational health assessment The reason for that is because there are many drivers that could be pushing that employee back into work and pushing them back too soon. So the health professional, the occupational health professional will make that judgment as to whether actually it is appropriate time to return back or not. Um, You know, I have sort of said to employees, actually, you know, realistically, you're not able to do normal day-to-day tasks you know you tell me that you're struggling with that so you know I'll question them why do they think it's relevant and appropriate to then start to include work into their you know expectations and tasks that they do each day and it has then made them go yeah I see where you're coming from Um, but sometimes finances are the reason that are pushing them back into the workplace if you know this is great right let's bring you back into the workplace take a step back don't then bring them back in the next day <laughs> take some time to actually plan it and what i advise is that the individual employee writes out what does their work contain and how which of those aspects of work do they perceive are going to be quite demanding for them or which they perceive might provoke um, some of the long COVID symptoms. And again, that's where occupational health um, can be really, really valuable working with them through that. When they've done that, sharing that obviously with their line manager and working with the line manager to then construct the content of work and that phase return or or, um, work trial, um, you know, bringing them back into the workplace. Mm, amazing thank you okay. That's great um how much of an issue is long covid do we mm. know how many people are thought to actually have long covid in this country is this something that's being monitored how much of a problem is it yeah yeah so another really interesting point uh, there is difficulties with the data collection because of the diagnostic process as what you described (laughs) you know um, and also that even some GPs are denying the existence of long COVID Um, it is being revealed that it's tending to be more prevalent in like I've said in, in sectors of health social care education tends to be more prevalent in the female population we don't know why that is at the moment people who have got a a pre-existing diagnosis of asthma it's now being revealed that yeah people who are hospitalized with acute covid do go are more likely to experience long covid as well 
and people who are obese are also more likely to experience long COVID. Mm. Okay, interesting. So I think you said earlier that if someone has had continuing symptoms for 12 weeks, then it is thought, it is sort of classed as long COVID. Yes. And this may seem a bit of a silly question, but is there any, have, have people recovered from long COVID? Do you know how long it might it might tend to last or is that? Not a silly question. <laughs> no. <laughs> Highly relevant, and especially whether you're, when you're looking at that classification of disability under the Equality Act, is it, has it lasted or likely to last for 12 months or more? When I say it, I mean substantial impairments on day-to-day -day living. Um, okay, um, so, Yes, so people are experiencing symptoms um, for 12 months or more. We cannot define at the moment who is likely to experience symptoms for 12 months or more. So I'm erring on the side of caution. So if somebody has had symptoms for 12 weeks or more, then I will be saying that it is possible that these symptoms are going to continue on um, for 12 months or more. Therefore, you know, an employment tribunal might find them being classed as being disabled under the EQA, of course. Um, hopefully, you know, as data is being gathered, um, we will be able to have more clearer answers as time goes on. Yeah, because just to go back on what we were just just discussing, actually, about reasonable adjustments and bringing people back to work, um, the legal requirement is that uh, is only if people, if it could be classed as a disability, so if that physical or mental impairment um, that you were just saying about is, is likely to or has lasted for 12 months, then mm. the employer has certain obligations. But, That's right. Um, but but we would always say, I guess, that before then anyway, it would be best practice to explore those reasonable adjustments. It just wouldn't be a legal requirement. Is that yeah. what you would agree with? Or Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can wear two hats here. I'll put my public health hat on <laughs> <laughs> to begin with. There is so much evidence that says that somebody who is un unemployed their health deteriorates they have lower quality of life and lower um, health outcomes as well um, but from a business perspective you know I would advise you to really look at it from the ethical moral values point of view um, you know, what type of employer would you like to seem to be? Do you want to be an employer who's seen as being fair and supportive? Um, remember that every employee will talk to their friends and family <laughs> yeah. about how they're being treated in the workplace. And those people talk to their friends and families. You know, it does absolutely knock on. Um but also it's about, um, you know, you looking at your employee and, and considering about the, the, the work that they were able to do for you, the quality um, um, and volume of work um, and giving them a fair chance, really, at being able to return back to that. I can honestly say to you in my 20 years of doing occupational health assessments it's very rare 
that I would have an employee saying, I don't care, all indicating to me, I don't care about the type of work and the quality of work that I do. You know, they usually individuals are incredibly dedicated to their work. Their work means so much to them. And if they are kind of in that more negative attitude, then it's as a consequence of something else that they perceive as detrimental having occurred in the workplace. Interesting. Gosh, great. And yeah, I really find your point that you said before about um, unemployed people and the quality of life and the impact that that has. Um, yeah, really important. I think work is so important for so many different reasons, isn't it? I think we've seen that over the last 18 months, um, all working remotely. Exactly. Have really struggled with social isolation and missing mm. the team, the sort of having your team around you. Yes, we can exactly. work together through technology, but not quite the same, is it? It isn't. It <laughs> yeah, isn't. It's, a, it's um, it's helpful for for our sort of um well-being, isn't it? I think totally. It gives us our, our sense of purpose, our sense of being valued our reason for getting up in the morning it gives us a sense of routine it gives us a sense of agency and being capable and strong and doing something Mm. yeah that's another interesting point because I think people on furlough um, Mm. well because even though they were being looked after by the government Mm. no real reason to get up in the morning or there was no purpose for your day and um, yeah I've spoken to quite a few people HR people who were looking after and communicating with employees who were on furlough um, mm. during that time, and and they were the group that that struggled the most, really. Yes, furlough, really interesting point. Yes, fantastic, Anna. Thank you. You've been so generous with your time. Oh, um, anything else that you just wanted to add in terms of long COVID or what employers should be considering? <laughs> um, I suppose the only other thing I would go deeper into is about those reviews and the con one I just like to bring out one point about the content of those reviews and when you're considering if the individual is able to increase their hours their work hours and work demands is this reviews in terms of um when you do a when you've created a report no this is the reviews of when the individual has come back into the workplace and you're checking to see how they're getting on um, at work and you're checking to see whether the hours can be increased or not you know whether the person feels able to increase their hours or not okay one question I suggest you ask of them is how able are they to complete tasks at home to do with duties with regards to their family but also how able are they to do their leisure and social activities? If they're putting all their energy into work and not able to do those activities out of work, it won't be sustained. They will crash and burn at some point. Interesting. So to ask those questions about what they're doing, what they're able to do at home and what they're enjoying doing as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going back to that work-life balance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so, so important to have a really good work-life balance. Um, and of course, the individual employee may not answer you. You know, they may be worried for whatever reason or just want to keep that side private. That's fine, but at least you've given them the opportunity um, to, to talk to you about it. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you see somebody who's off mm. sick mm. and you see them doing something that, um, I don't know, doing doing a leisure activity or, or out and about somewhere, um, that, <laughs> that may... Um, um, give the employer or whoever a purpose to um, think think something else of them. <laughs> mm. um, so, how what would you how would what would you advise in that respect? Yeah, lifestyle is extremely important on for good health. <laughs> so, what I mean by that is going out and having fun, <laughs> yeah. doing regular exercise, having good social contact. So, as an occupational health professionals. Um, we will be recommending people to be actively doing that um, in all, all ill health conditions, unless, of course, they're contagious. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, to be making sure that they're doing um, activities that give them sense of fun and pleasure enjoyments, you know, good and supportive social contact. Um, and trying to do, you know, the physical activity that, that they feel able to do. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. It's all right. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, Anna, how can we get, how can people get in touch with you? Oh, thank you. So my website is www.whibwib.co.uk. And my email is Anna, A-N-N-A at whip.co.uk. I'm also very prolific on LinkedIn. I'm less prolific on um, Twitter, but you can find me on there as well. And you're very welcome to connect and, and have a chat with me through any of those social media um, places. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate your time. Thank it's you. an absolute pleasure, Polly. Thank you so much. 